following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible this morning. Our scripture reading is in Ezekiel and the 11th chapter. I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read in the 11th chapter of Ezekiel. We've been watching from a historical distance the movement of God's Spirit out of the temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 11 says, Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And there at the door of the gate were 25 men, among whom I saw Jaazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel to this city, or in this city, who say, The time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Your slain whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron. But I shall bring you out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God, and I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments on you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. Now it happened, while I was prophesying, Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. And then I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the, from the Lord, this land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, Assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they will go there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, 
and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, so you can always kind of think in your mind in parentheses there, idolatry, detestable things and abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. So cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. You see what's happened now? The glory of the Lord that was in the temple, to the threshold, above the threshold, out to the east, out to the outside of the city. He's left. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me. So I spoke to those in captivity of all the things the Lord had shown me. So that's the end of that vision that Ezekiel had and uh, what was happening there far, far away from where they were at the present in Chaldea. Amen. I spoke last uh, Sunday about the grace of God and... uh, I didn't finish speaking about that grace. Thank you. You're picking up what I'm saying. (laughs) Psalm 32, please, this morning. Psalm 32. Our brother wisely said, I can't finish speaking of the grace of God. The grace of God is infinite. The grace of God is beyond measure. The grace of God we could talk about in different facets and forms every Sunday morning. But we're taking a special couple of weeks at least to think on this. And I gave you a homework assignment last time, and that was to look at Psalm 32. So we're going to see how you did, class, and you're looking at the 32nd of the Psalms. What God's grace does for you, here we are in part two this morning. Good to see you, brother. Amen. All right, good. Uh, I'll talk to you later about how your first week went. I've been... I've been dying to hear. (laughs) All good. All right. Very good. Well, that's God's grace too right there. So another illustration of that in God giving our brother employment and having a good week. God's grace, as we said, forgives and cleanses and restores, and it is just a blessing. We pick up in our uh, Roman numerals here where we left off last time. And by the way, for those of you that are online, I do apologize. I had an oversight this morning and did not get that uploaded to the website. So you're going to see a big uh, word there, stand by, I think. And uh, so the notes are not there, but I will get them to you. So uh, you'll just have to imagine you have the notes in in your mind's eye and follow along with them. Hopefully you can do that until I can get those published uh, up there for you. We saw in our last study in uh, Jeremiah 18 that God's grace is a restoring grace. We saw in Psalm 51 that his rich favor is a forgiving and cleansing favor toward us, but there is more yet to be said. In fact, there's a famous little book that I think we have in the library by Charles Spurgeon. It's called All of Grace. 
all of grace. I highly recommend that. It's a good read for you to think about. Uh, Everything is of grace. Everything good in creation, the good gifts in life, life itself, salvation, godliness, heaven, all of grace. It's all of grace. Remember, we've defined God's grace as his unmerited favor, his unmerited favor. Uh, it's, uh, we're trying to wrap our, our arms around an idea of God's giving nature. God is a good God, and he's giving by nature. Uh, he gives uh, magnanimous gifts, and to try to wrap your head around that is it's a bit difficult to do, but we're working at it here. We turn to Psalm 32, and we revel in God's grace some more. Before we do that, though, we're going to have to come to a couple of preliminary steps in the study of God's grace. Let me read uh, at least a portion of this psalm. It says uh, in the superscription, it's a psalm of David, again. It's a contemplation, uh, a, uh, a skillful thought, uh, maybe wisdom. Maybe it has. It's not really exactly sure these words at the beginning sometimes of the psalm, but it doesn't really matter. We get the content starting in the beginning of our English verse 1 where it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I could stop the reading. We could just sit and think and meditate on those words right there. Well, we could go to verse 2 also. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And think of the nature of that blessing. Think of the depth of that blessing, the eternal length of that blessing, who sustains that blessing, how that blessing was created. And then it says in verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And Selah again. He has that several times in the psalm. I've pronounced that Selah. Some have, done, have pronounced it Selah. There's different ways it's pronounced. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you, verse 6 says, in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance. Selah, again. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse. Or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, you upright of heart. Before you get to God's grace, you have to understand your own misery. Before God's grace comes your misery. When you realize your guilt before God, and that's what I think David is illustrating for us here, 
whether or not it was this specific instance uh, that was spoken of at the heading of Psalm 51, which had to do with David and Bathsheba and Uriah and that whole uh, tawdry affair that went on there, uh, David knew of the blessing of forgiveness because he knew of the misery of When you realize your guilt before God, listen to that. When you realize your guilt before God, life is miserable. Life is miserable, as David expressed in 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, my groaning, hand, God's hand heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into a drought. The circumstances were terrible. And sometimes, even if you do not recognize your sin and guilt, you may well be miserable. And you should be. Look at the massive physical and psychological effects of sin on your conscience and in your body. First of all, he says, my bones grew old. That's kind of a strange phrase, but we kind of understand it inherently, don't we? You know, I say sometimes, I could get these weary bones moving. You know, you ever said that? I haven't seen anything yet, he says. He confidently asserts from his place of knowing firsthand. (laughs) This is a reference to the entire body, the bones, because the bones are the foundation of the body. They're the very inmost part of you. It's the superstructure. When you are in sin's misery, you feel old and aged and slow and weak and stiff and unable to serve God in the right way. Your bones grow old. You seem to be prematurely aged. You groan. Look at that in verse 3b there. Through my groaning all the day long. You, You not only in your misery... Your bones feel old, but you groan all day. Depression weighs down on you constantly. We are not merely a shell of atoms bouncing around into each other and electricity flowing and and all of that sort of thing on a mere material level. The spiritual stuff of which we're made of which science doesn't really tell us all of that much, does it? Impacts our physical bodies so that when we have sin, I mean, there's, there seems to be, why, why is there a connection? You, you've done something wrong. Somebody's done something wrong to you. Somebody's offended you. You've offended somebody else or something. How does that affect the, the matter in your body? How does that affect the, you know, from a purely naturalistic, scientific, uh, you know, standpoint, why would punching my brother in the nose make me feel so bad later on? If I do, hopefully. You know, something more is going on than mere matter here. The sin causes me misery in my bones and I groan. Depression weighs down on me constantly. This, you know, for some, of course... They're going to say, what is he talking about? You know, When you realize that you're a sinner, this book proclaims that all has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can agree with it or disagree with it, but eventually you will agree with it. You will one day, if not now. Better to do it now, though. But the, 
the bald fact, the reality is that we all are sinners and fall short of God's glory. We have not just made mistakes. We, you know, we, have, we just don't have human shortcomings or that's everybody does it or whatever. When you realize that you have sinned against God, that your sin has an eternal wage, that your sin is captivating you, that it's enslaving you, you will be depressed constantly if you don't know what to do about that. You know you're not doing right. You're living maybe the contradiction of saying that you're a person of God, but you're demonstrating otherwise in your actions. You worry that you're going to be found out. What happens if I'm found out? What are my relationships going to do when I'm found out? Are they going to be strained or broken? Besides that, you may know that you've done wrong, but you're powerless to fix it. I can't do anything. That, the, the water is so far under the bridge, I can't fix what I've done now. It's, my life is a mess. I, I, can't, I can't fix what I've done to my parents and my children and, and people in my church or this person with whom I'm at odds, and I, I'm powerless. You're groaning. Thirdly, the third effect of sin and your misery is that you sense God's hand is heavy upon you all the time. You feel God's heavy hand is a frowning providence. That's a phrase maybe you're not familiar with, but I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of it. If you were to say, boy, I've been experiencing a smiling providence from God in my life, joy, things have been good, blessings have been pouring out upon us and our family. But what about a frowning providence where God's look upon you is not so light and happy, but it's more hmm, from God. Nothing seems to be going right in your life. There's nothing you think to be joyful about. Of course, you're depressed, so even if there are things that are joyful, you downplay those and make them into things, things that don't seem so good. You justify that your problems are God's fault, not your own. Well, that can't be. You know why? Because nothing is God's fault. <laughs> God hasn't done anything to be at fault for. Why do we blame God for what we've, you know, we, we look at our room and we say, it's a mess. God, why did you make it that way? You're the one that made your room into a mess. We made this room into a mess. This whole life, humans are at fault, not God. Sin and its effects are humanity's fault. You might feel often that you're not sure if you're doing the right thing and that you don't know what is the right thing to do in the first place. You're in a heavy situation instead of a light and cheerful one. God's hand is heavy upon you all the time. Everything seems bad. Finally, in your misery, your vitality is turned to drought. You not only have all this depression and physical effects of sin, but life is dry. He says in verse 4, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. You know how that feels? Life is lethargic. It feels useless to go on. You know why? You're like Psalm 1, verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Unlike the blessed man, the man who doesn't walk in the 
counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but delights in the law of the Lord. In his law, he's thinking all the time. It says he will be like a tree, not in drought, but planted by the rivers of water. He will bring forth his fruit in his season and his leaves also will not wither. But the wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff. They don't have lush green leaves. They're dried up. They're apart from the life-giving holiness of God. Their vitality is turned to drought. You do not have nourishing, the joy-giving flow of God's Spirit in you. You're dirty when you're in sin, like David was. You're clogged up. You're distant from God's grace. You say, what if I'm a believer? What if I'm a Christian? Well, yes, even then, if you're living in sin, not confessing and not repenting, you're going to be functionally like an unbeliever at that point in time, in that way in your life. And it's actually going to be worse for you because God, you won't have just the normal operation of, say, you know, hearing some crazy preacher telling you're a sinner or, you're, you know, hearing the voice of your conscience saying, uh-uh-uh-uh, but you'll have the work of God through the Spirit of God and the word that you already know that's parked up here in your head telling you, hmm, you shouldn't be doing that. And if you do that, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Your vitality will be turned to drought. You will have misery upon misery. We have to start with God's grace by understanding our misery in sin. That's what sin looks like. If you feel that way, maybe it's, maybe it's not maybe. It could very well be that you have some sin in your life that needs to be gotten rid of. That needs to be gotten rid of. Did you notice that uh, David, or actually, did you notice how we had to take those phrases, the bones and the vitality, and kind of unpack them? Think of the marvelous genius of David who packed them initially. Just talking about the beauty of this poetry. He was able to take the feelings of misery that he had in his sin and reduce it to these four statements that we've had. That's amazing, isn't it? And he portrays just exactly how you feel when you have that kind of situation in your life. But not only your misery, your awakening. Secondly, your awakening. And the awakening is really in two parts. First of all, you have to banish deceit. And then you have to acknowledge sin. Banish deceit and then acknowledge sin. Look at verse number two. Blessed is the man, he has said three times, basically, in one and two, in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you say, I don't have sin, you're deceiving yourself. Stop trying to deceive others, including yourself. There's no hiding that you're a sinner. Why, why is it when everybody has something in common, sin, we all want to hide it from each other? Like we already know we all have it. What's to hide? What's to hide? 
Sinners often try to do that, don't they? What a relief not to have to hide all that garbage anymore and try to look good. You know what looking good is called? It's a Pharisee characteristic. Looking good is self-righteousness. Or, or sometimes instead of that, we just want to redefine our sin into something acceptable to our conscience. You know what that is? Self-deception. So either self-righteousness or self-deception. Or we try to deceive others. The blessed man, however, is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit toward himself or toward others. Look at uh, Proverbs, if you will, and that verse I've highlighted in uh, the notes if you're here, and I see the printout, but in Proverbs 28, it says in verse 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Acknowledge your sin, my friends. Don't continue to deceive yourselves. And that's where we go with the second part of this, and that's in verse number five, when he says, look, I got rid of deceit. I, I, this deceit has got to go. And then he says, verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then he forgave the iniquity of my sin. No more silence about your sin. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones grew old. That silence was about the silence of confession, of trying to hide sin from God and from man as well. That silence is because it's it's difficult to admit that you're wrong, isn't it? You ever have that? Just use these words with your spouse or family member sometime. I am sorry for, and then fill in the blank, whatever it was that you did. Say it. Just say it. You make yourself say that because you need to. It's hard to admit that you're wrong, that you do not measure up, that you need something you do not have and cannot get on your own. Maybe you need somebody's forgiveness. You can't cajole that out of them. You need God's forgiveness. You cannot cajole that out of him. You can't make him forgive. And and if you're a real individualist like many of us are, it's hard hard to agree with that premise that that I have to admit that I'm wrong. I, I cannot solve my problem. To be able to say that is tough. But the path to blessing to God, from God, paradoxically, is through the doorway of acknowledgement that you've not been pleasing to God. The road back to godliness, this is strange. The road back to godliness is to admit that you've not been godly. Okay, Jesus never had to do that, of course. He never had to confess sin or admit his, he was always perfectly godly. But for every other human being, the path of godliness is covered with confession of sin. That's the only way to be godly, is to admit that you have not been godly. Isn't that something? But that's the, that's the, the thing that God has done for us and made for us. Now, I'm, I'm targeting what I'm saying here to a particular audience of people, and that is the audience who is sensitized 
to their sin. Those who realize their misery in sin, not who are just, you know, ignoring what I'm saying or hard-hearted and love your sin and, and think I'm full of trash as I try to explain your life and describe your situation. For those people who are just like, you know, I'll say just this one thing, just hear me out, one thing. You will face God someday and be sorry that you did not listen today. If my words do not move you to consider your ways, maybe the future judgment, the certainty of future judgment will move you to think about what I'm saying. You have to recognize the misery of sin and you have to recognize the solutions to that sin are to banish deceit and to acknowledge your iniquity. Thirdly, now we come to God's grace. Your misery and your response to sin and now to God's saving. Verses 1 and 2 and also in verse number 5. First of all, sin, he says, is forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and for whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. When the Bible says that your sin is forgiven, this means that the sin itself, all of it, okay, every act, every intention, uh, every part of your sinful nature, the imputed sin that you share as a member of Adam's race, all of that, none, none of it is held against you, and its guilt is no longer held against you. The word here for forgiven is that it's lifted up. It's removed off of your shoulders, if you will. He carries away the sins of the blessed person who has been forgiven. This is connected to the idea of pardoned. Your sins are pardoned. The Spanish translation has perdonada in it, pardoned. Your sins are forgiven. They are pardoned. It's such a blessing. Your eternal sentence is commuted entirely for your sin. Now, David writes of the word transgression here in verse number one. A transgression is a, a word for sin that, that refers to a crossing of a boundary or a line. God drew a line in the sand. Don't do this. You did this. Now you have guilt. And God then graciously takes that guilt. If you believe in him, believe in Christ, and he takes that guilt and sin away and the iniquity of that transgression. It's a disappointing thing if you think about it of yourself. God said, do not, and you now know of yourself, I did what he told me not to do, or I didn't do what he told me to do. I transgressed his commands. Man, that's where that misery comes from. But God's grace, he forgives. Now, the parallel phrase here, this is poetry, by the way. You notice in your Bible, probably, it's laid out as poetry, as little verses, you know, or stitches, little colons, little pieces Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven is the first one, and then whose sin is covered. Understood again, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. This poetic expression, the second one, says that the person's sin is covered. 
Now, we dealt with this at some length before, the idea of sin being covered in another message or two. And what I said there in summary was that covering is an inadequate concept if by it all you mean is hidden or put under something so as not to be visible until later. Something way more was happening with sin in the Old Testament saint's life than mere concealing or papering over sin. Instead, think of cover as what it is here, the parallel of what word in the earlier phrase? Cover is parallel to forgive. Cover is parallel to forgive. That's how it's used here by David. Or think of it this way in in, uh, kind of colloquial English. When you go out to lunch with somebody at a restaurant and the server says to you, your meal has been covered by an anonymous donor. Covered. In that usage, covered means taken care of. Your lunch bill has been taken care of. Or I'll cover that for you when you go to the store with somebody. You know, just put it on my card. It's with all my other stuff. I've covered it for you. Blessed is the man whose sins are taken care of by God. Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. That's what it means. Forgiven in Christ. Now think about what this means for you. If you are in Jesus, that means that your sins are taken care of. They're taken care of. They're no longer an issue that withholds God's blessing. Think of it. I just, I could sit and think about this for a while and just say, you know, what a blessing to think. My stuff has been taken care of by God, by Christ. He died to take care of my sins. What a hope it is that Jesus did that for me and for you. That He died in my place to take care of my sins sin. (laughs) Yes, otherwise. Listen to the next phrase in verse 2. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. We don't have to linger here long, but this means that God does not reckon or think your sins against you anymore. He thinks about you differently than what he did before. Can you imagine that he does not think of you as a dirty, rotten scoundrel? which you were and sometimes still act like. He thinks of you as a child of God, as one imputed the righteousness of Christ. He does not charge your sin to you in the legal sense of charging a crime. This is taught in a very wonderful way in Paul's letter to the second letter rather to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we're imploring you 
as if we were Jesus himself, please be reconciled to God. Why? Because he, God, made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse tells us what Psalm 32.2 means. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That is, God takes and makes Christ a sin, in sin, as it were, for us. Makes him. It just blows your mind. How did God take a sinless lamb, the Son of God, and it could be said that he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Instead, in, in fact, not only does God not impute our iniquity to us, he does not reckon it to be our own. He reckons the righteousness of Christ instead of that to be ours. That's got to blow your mind. It does mine. How is it? How can it be? This grace that he has bestowed. No wonder David says, blessed is the man. You can't be a happier man than to know all that. God saves, he forgives, he does not impute our iniquities to us. When, you're, when you experience God's forgiving and cleansing grace, life is not only, my friends, bearable, but is joyful. Even in suffering, as a partaker of God's grace of salvation, you have the deep-seated knowledge that your eternal home is secure and that you have nothing to worry about. So, misery, woe, you banish deceit, you acknowledge sin, God forgives, God cleanses, God does not impute iniquity. How do you respond? Well, verses 6 to 11, the end of the psalm, tell us how to respond. Everyone who is godly shall pray to you. He's in no doubt going to pray and offer thanks. I'll let you look at the little detail there about the kind of person that's supposed to be praying there. But I think in the end, we have to recognize that even for the believer in Christ, we should be praying and thanking God, and we should recognize that in a time when you may be found, surely there's a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him, that there are dangers in this life as we dabble with sin. And the psalmist is trying to get us to say, to to tell us, look, don't go there. Don't go to that place where you're, you know, on the border of the forest fire, right? You're going to be in trouble. And so there is a way in which you can recognize your sin Confess your sin, get away from that sin, and pass off away from, get away from this idea or this reality, rather, of the consequences that will come your way. Instead of, instead of toying with sin, trusting in God is what we're calling for here. And then, not only should we pray and offer thanks to God and, and uh, notice that we can st- you know, be delivered from the consequences of sin and not get down too far that road. Remember, God does chastise. He does chastise, sometimes even to the point of death. Better to confess your sin and to cut that pathway right there, just 
stop it now. Don't go farther down that road. Bad deal. Then take what you've learned. You've been in misery. You've banished deceit. You've acknowledged your sin. You've experienced the mercy and grace of God and salvation and forgiveness. Pass on your wisdom to others. Look at verse number 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is how we should respond when dealing with others in, in response to our sin. You know, here's a good piece of advice. The guy says, you know, David, after he's gone through probably, you know, Uriah, Bathsheba and Uriah and his child has died and all the consequences that are in his home and maybe he's sitting there teaching some of his grandchildren and he says, listen, don't be like a stubborn mule. Listen to what I'm saying. Don't be like a horse. You know, you can lead that horse to water, but, you know, you can hang on his neck and try to get his nose down in that tank all you want, but if he doesn't want to do it, he's not going to do it. Don't be like that. Don't be dumb. Don't do what I did. Learn from my experience and don't repeat it again. Another piece of wisdom, verse 10. If you choose to continue to be like the horse or the mule, the donkey, many sorrows will be your portion. Verse 10a, see that? Many sorrows will be to the wicked. So don't be surprised if you choose the life of wickedness that you have a lot of problems. You know, the way of the, the, way of the evildoer is hard. The way of the sinner is difficult. If you have difficulties, don't be surprised. Better to trust in the Lord and experience God's mercy. Look, if you're admitting your sin, you need to trust in the Lord as you do that because I mean, some consequences may come to you, even still. But regardless, if you trust in the Lord, God will be merciful. And then finally, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All of this calls for songs of loudest praise, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I will sing of the mercies of my God forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you for saving our souls from sin. It's something else, isn't it? Be glad in the Lord. You've gone from misery through grace to joy. That's the pathway that God's grace takes us on. So Psalm 32 explains the results of confession and cleansing that are experienced by a sinner who repents. And you know what? You can experience this for the first time today or for the thousandth time today. If you're a believer in Christ, maybe it's been a thousand times. Maybe it's every day. Lord, I'm sorry again. How did I get myself into that one again? Please deliver me. Or maybe you're here and you're saying, I am in utter, sheer misery. I know I've sinned against God, but what do I do about it? I've been trying. I've been trying. Listen, finally, release. Recognize nothing in your hands you can bring. Simply to that cross, you cling. You have nothing. You cannot help yourself. You must simply confess your sin, banish deceit, and say, I'm done with it. What a relief will come. 
That stuff is such a burden to carry. Why do you want to carry that? Call unto the Lord and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. Be saved from your sins. This is Psalm 32. I'll let you read the last paragraph of the notes. It carries on with another thought that's coordinate with this one, but doesn't really fit with what I'm trying to accomplish this morning at this moment, although it is a good teaching point. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the wonderful privilege you've given us to look at your word and to meditate on this 32nd psalm. It's been a long time, perhaps ever, since I've preached on this psalm, but I have certainly read it many a time and certainly reveled in the glories of its truth. And I pray that each one here will have that same experience over the ensuing years, however long it is until you return. Strengthen us, Lord. Cause us to be joyful. And Lord, if there's one or two or many of us here who have some problem with admitting we're wrong, with acknowledging our sin, with banishing deceit, pray that your spirit would work in us. Help us to recognize those are, those are the only things we can do. Otherwise, we're just going to be trying to hide the obvious. And you see in the dark just as well as in the light. So bring ones to yourself through this message today, Lord. It's a simple message. It's right from Scripture. There's not a lot of power or persuasion or antics up here to get anyone to believe because it's, Lord, your spirit that we pray that will take the heart of flesh, the heart of stone, rather, out of our hearts and put in a heart of flesh, soften our hearts, that we would not reject the truth of God. In Jesus' name, amen.